Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a show about the ways tech and innovation are making the world freer, uh, happier, safer, and more prosperous, or could, if we allow it. Uh, How many siblings do you have? Is that number larger or smaller than the number of kids that you have or are planning to have? Well, if you're like most people around the globe, you will have fewer kids than the preceding generation, and your kids will have fewer kids than you did, and so on and so forth. The global birth rate has been in a free fall, so much so that on the horizon, and nearer than you might think, there will be a crisis of global depopulation. To discuss this trend with us, we have John Ibbotson Ibbotson joining us today. Uh, Welcome to the show, John. Hello. And uh, John is actually one of the authors, along with uh, Daryl Bricker, and Daryl is the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, Uh, but they wrote the book Empty Planet, The Shock of Global Population Decline, out now. Uh, John is also an award-winning Canadian journalist, a writer-at-large at at the Globe and Mail, and a uh, successful playwright uh, as well. Uh, To kick us off, John, Tell us what the conventional wisdom about global population trends is. Like what if you if you just went and Googled the first couple of results, where would those numbers come from and what would they say? The numbers would come from the United Nations Population Division, which is a very respected arm of the UN. And those numbers would say that the current um, population of just over, well, a bit more than 7 billion will increase to about 11.2 billion at the end of this century, and then start to level off. Uh, this is something that, that Daryl Bricker and I call vertical knowledge. It is knowledge that is so deeply ingrained in the society that whether you are talking to the highest level of policy expert or um, anyone on the street, they will all tell you that population, uh, the population of the of this earth is growing rapidly. It's a huge problem, and it's going to keep growing rapidly and become a big bigger problem. But like a lot of vertical knowledge, sometimes if you look at it hard, you realize that the reality has has gone past where we are, and that's that reality is what Daryl and I explored in Empty Planet. Now, you have a very different set of numbers, as I understand it. So rather than saying by the end of the century, we're going to see that that kind of growth tail off. What's the time horizon you guys uh, suggest? And, it's, and of course, it's not just us. We are channeling a group of dissident demographers who claim that the UN is wrong. Uh, what we did was essentially uh, listen to their arguments and then go out into the field and do a bunch of interviewing and researching ourselves. Um, and we are uh, we are with the dissident demographers. We think that the population of the Earth will get to somewhere between 8 and 9 billion um, somewhere around the middle of the century, and then it's going to start to go down. And this will be remarkable. For the first time in all of human history, the planet's population will start to go down, and it will keep going down. It will never stop. And by the end of this century, we could be back down to around 7 billion where we are right now. What, what does never stop mean? Like never, never stop? It's just going to keep going all the way to zero? Well, for the, well, uh, that would be several thousand years away. So you know, we have time to consider. Um, and but we would say in the foreseeable future, for the next couple or three generations, uh, we will have fewer people every year than we had the year before. What happens in the next century? Uh, we're not going to crystal ball that far. But certainly in this century, our population is going to crest and then start to decline. So, what did the uh, UN modelers get wrong? And I, I'm no expert, but when models get things wrong, it's often a garbage in, garbage out kind of problem. There's some kind of assumption that, that that's a mistake. So, so why are they getting this very different result? 
The UN demographers believe that past trends will continue uh, unchanged. So if a country took, let's say, 60 years to get from a birth rate of four per woman to a birth rate of two per woman, then another country uh, will, will follow that same path. Uh, and everything that has happened uh, in you know since the population began to take off in the 19th century and then just exploded in the 20th century will continue in the 21st century. And what we and those other demographers maintain is, no, there are things happening on the ground right now that change those assumptions. Things uh, and, and because those assumptions, because those things on the ground are happening so quickly, those assumptions are now faulty and shouldn't be relied upon. Now, my limited understanding is that the um, the relationship is between countries that become wealthier and more urbanized have falling birth rates, and that there's a that that's the correlation. Uh, how does why does that mechanism work that way? What is it that leads wealthier countries that are more urbanized to have fewer kids? So when you in the case of the West, what we had, as you well know, was the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century, which brought vast numbers of people out of rural environments and integrate big teeming cities. When people move into a city, uh, four different things happen. The first is uh, children stop being an economic asset, another pair of hands to work in the fields, and start becoming an economic liability, just another mouth to feed. The second and equally important thing that happens is that women acquire education. In the city, they have access to information they didn't have in the village. They have access to a state school system, perhaps. Uh, they have access to mass media um, that they didn't have in the village. And they have access to other women, who, and then they educate each other. Um, and as women acquire more education, uh, they acquire more autonomy. And as they acquire more autonomy, they begin to make demands. And perhaps the most powerful demand that they make is that they be allowed to decide how many children they are going to have. And when women have the power to choose how many children they're going to have, they invariably choose to have fewer uh, than their mothers had. They want to do other things in their lives than just be mothers to a large brood of children. Two other less important things that occur. Uh, the power of religion is much stronger in a rural environment than it is in an urban environment. Uh, and religion in it is traditional form invariably asserts that men are superior to women and that women should stay at home and have large numbers of kids and look after the man. Um, and also the power of the clan declines. In a, in a rural environment, your, you know, your, your extended family is pressuring you to get married, settle down, have kids. But when you move into the city, the power of that family erodes and is replaced by, by co-workers. And think about it. When was the last time one of your co-workers urged you to get married and have a baby? I mean, Aaron does it every day. No, I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> does it every day. No, um, yeah, no. I, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. That there, there isn't that kind of familial pressure to you know, gra grandma asking you, okay, so when are you going to have a, a grandbaby for me? From your exactly so. Right, yeah. That makes sense. How, how does something, though, like the baby boom fit into this story? Because that was post-industrial revolution and America had been urbanizing for a while and we got a, a big jump in a generational cohort. Yeah, it was uh, a, a blip and, and it ended up disguising a greater reality. So – in 1800, uh, an average American white woman, for, there is no data, unfortunately, for non-white women, a white woman in the United States in 1800 would have, on average, seven children. By 1900, she was having four. So the United States and, and all other industrializing nations, including Canada, where I'm from, 
um, were, were essentially having their birth rate in the course of the 19th century. That continued to carry on right through to the end of the Second World War. Um, in fact, by the, 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 the outbreak of the Second World War, the fertility rate in the United States, the number of, ch of children per woman, uh, was very close to replacement rate, uh, which is 2.1. If you have a society where on average there are 2.1 children per woman, then you have stability. More than that, the population goes up. Less than that, your population eventually starts to go down. The, the, the baby boom, which was a result of the affluence that came with the end of the war, of all the pent-up demand that had been caused by the Great Depression and by the Second World War, the invention of the suburbs, uh, this caused um, a tremendous um, release in, in energy, as it were, uh, and you had a tremendous number of newly enfranchised, newly middle-classed men and women um, having babies together. And so the birth rate shot up, but it only shot up for one generation. It was already on its way back down by the mid-60s, and by the mid-70s, it was back down to where it was at the outbreak of the war, and then it kept falling. And that's what nobody predicted, that it would get down to replacement rate and then drop below replacement rate and then continue to drop considerably below replacement rate to where it's at in the United States and Canada and, and almost all of the developed worlds right now, countries in the developed world right now, about half a baby short of what you need to sustain your population. Hmm. Now, uh, I, you mentioned religion at one point. I, I did find that interesting because the the handful of exceptions that I can think of to these broader social trends um, are religious communities. So, like the you know, Haredi Jews in Israel or quiverful Protestant fundamentalists in the U.S. Religious communities that have responded by having more children than ever before, right? Like I, I growing up, I knew like homeschooled fundamentalist families who would have eight or nine kids which in and of itself was a statement. It was a statement of defiance of modernity and and uh, the world and, and the like. But I, I guess my question is this. Um, will this be a cause of future tensions in the sense that like in Israel right now, there's already tension between us, uh, a more secular Jewish population and the, the you know, uh, Orthodox ready Jews because they're having way more kids than the replacement rate, yet secular Jews are not. And so the Haredi are like 12% of the population today, which will rise to about 40% of the population by 2065 because of that birth rate disparity. And so like I would expect those political and cultural tensions to grow. I mean, would we see the same thing in the U.S. in the sense that there will be sub, you know, uh, uh, sub-communities uh, that continue to have elevated birth rates that don't track the general trend and that as a source of, of political and cultural tension? The quick answer is no. Okay. I mean, Israel is an outlier. I believe that Israel is the only country in the developed world that has a birth rate that's higher than replacement rate. It's up around three. And there are obviously unique historical reasons why Israelis um, feel the need to have lots of kids. Uh, by the way, the Palestinian uh, birth rate in Israel is also three. So it's not a case where one group is going to completely eclipse the other group. Um, the, the Palestinian fertility rate is coming down even as the Israeli fertility rate stays high. But no, in the, in the United States or any other developed country, those religious communities are far too small to have any, meaning, any meaningful impact. And there might be someone listening at this point who's going to say, aha, but what about Muslim immigrants? Uh, what about people who could be coming into the United States 
um, from uh, from the from the Muslim world, or people coming in from uh, Latino countries who have very high birth rates, and and they will have many more kids than the native born. And the really quick answer is that's not happening either. In any country, um, immigrants uh, within the very first generation uh, replicate the fertility rate of the host country. So uh, if you're in a country where where your birth rate is three. And you move to the United States, where your where the birth rate is about 1.7, according to the latest data, um, then your fertility rate will be 1.7, like everybody else's. Um, by the way, and this is I know where where we're going to get to in a minute. This might be a way of of introducing it. We're talking now about the developed world and what's been going on since the 1800s, uh, and you know the the two dozen or so countries that are right now are losing population every year. That is a fascinating story, but it's not the real story. The real story is what's happening in the developing world. And if you look at that portion of it that, that the United States is so particularly interested in, which is Latin America, if you look at the fertility rate of all of Latin America and all of the Caribbean, so basically everything in the Western Hemisphere except Canada and the United States, they are now at replacement rate. They are at 2.1. So you are not going to have great floods of uh, Latino migrants coming into the United States because Latino migrants are no longer having a lot of kids, uh, either in the United States or in, in their, their native countries. One of the things that uh, struck me as I was reading the book, um, so I tried to put myself in the mindset. I, I, I'm a uh, historian by training. I'm trying to imagine a historian a century from now thinking about what seems most alien about society today. Like I'm writing a history of of those folks long time ago in early 21st century America. Uh, and what, what it strikes me that we will feel most odd to the future future historians, future scholars will be that at this moment where global depopulation, a crisis of depopulation is on just cresting the horizon that folks were so worried about keeping immigrants out when to a future future me, they'll be like, well, it's obvious you need to keep have as many immigrants as possible to resist this trend for as long as possible. Like that's, it, it feels very odd. This 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 we're having this conversation about uh, immigration, in the United States, immigration restrictionism when countries that have immigrants are going to uh, kind of manage that transition the best. And where do you see that cropping up? Is It's places like the U.S., I think you mentioned in the book, uh, Canada. Uh, why is that? Why, why are we seeing that kind of counter-immigration trend uh, uh, taking some of the pressure off depopulation? Well, that's a very large question. And allow me to give you um, a, a, a full answer to it. Um, the, populate, the population decline is not the result of uh, people in the West having fewer babies. That's been the case now for um, you know a generation. That is why we have somewhere between 24 and 30 countries uh, that are already losing population. Japan, for example, lost almost 450,000 people just last year. <clears throat> the real story is what's happening in the developing world. And here again, we have this vertical knowledge. Everybody knows. Everybody knows that the developing world is a basket case. Everybody knows that nothing is ever going to change. Everyone knows that they have huge numbers of children and that um, these are the parts of the world that will continue to drive population growth to 8 billion, to 9 billion, to 10 billion, to 11 billion before. And you know, who knows what happens after that? Um, that is where the big mistake is being made. So I already mentioned to you that the entire Western Hemisphere outside the United States and Canada is at replacement rate. Much of the Middle East is at replacement rate. Much of the, uh, what you used to call the Far East, 
is at replacement rate or very close to replacement rate. The only place left in the world where you have high birth rates um, is in sub-Saharan Africa. And even when you go there, you discover that fertility rates are going down um, in some places very, very quickly. And they're going down for the same reason they're going down everywhere else, urbanization. The same process that happened in the West, the moving from the rural to the, to the urban, uh, is happening in the developing world, only it's happening at an incredible speed. So while it took a century and a half for the Western countries to get their fertility rates down to about 2.1 and then below, it's being done in a single generation uh, in places like Brazil, which is for ex the fifth largest country on earth uh, in terms of population, and which has a birth rate of 1.8. Brazil is going to start losing population. Uh, China, <clears throat> the one child policy brought them down to 1.5, 1.6. They thought when they lifted the ban, uh, that birth rates would go up, but they, they don't. Birth rates, by the way, never, ever go back up, and we can talk about that a bit later. But China <clears throat> is about to start losing population in the next decade. The largest country on Earth will lose somewhere between 300 and 600 million people in the century, depending on which um, variant you track. India, the second largest country on Earth, and soon to be the biggest country on Earth, just reached replacement rate. They are at 2.1. So you go looking around the world for places where the United Nations thinks populations are going to, to keep exploding, and you look at the actual country-specific data, and you discover there are no babies there. You're not going to get babies coming out of China or out of India or out of Brazil. Um, you're soon going to stop seeing them coming out of Indonesia or Malaysia or Kenya, and eventually even in places like Nigeria. Uh, this is where the population explosion is going to end. It's, it's where the population explosion is ending right now. Hmm. That's fascinating. I it, w one of the things I was um, also struck by while reading was okay. So we have this uh, faster than expected trend coming uh, of of depopulation, and it's affecting. I mean, right? Like you said, right? It's happening in the developing world at a much faster rate than it happened in the developed world o over the past century or two. Um, and I was struck some of the stories you told while you were on the ground, uh, like in India, and you're you're talking to, uh, you know, uh, women in like, uh, you know, in in in, in shanty towns in Indian cities, and when you actually look at how they're acting, I mean, so in India, they'll, they, apparently sterilization is quite common. You have two kids, and then you you get the government to sterilize you. Um, and they're on their smartphones. They're getting information. I mean. There's the. Well, I, I suppose that's the question. What is the cause of this accelerating trend? Why do we expect? And I think you're right. I mean, I, I find your argument convincing, which is that we shouldn't expect that uh, a downward trend in the birth rate to fall at the same rate as it did a century ago in, say, the U.S. or Western Europe. Um, what's the mechanism for it falling faster in places like India? And again, I buy your argument. You it, from it your is, data, it is falling faster, but why? It's that smartphone. Okay. So we we traveled to six continents. Um, you're right. We were in you know uh, a university campus at Seoul. We were at a dinner party in Brussels. We were in a favela in Sao Paulo. Uh, we were in Nairobi. Uh, we were in Beijing. We were in um, New Delhi, and we talked to uh, an, uh, you know an amazing different uh, you know assortment, mostly of young women. The amazing thing that we found was their message was almost always the same. If you were talking to a, a graduate student at Seoul National University 
in her 20s. And you were talking to a woman in a, in a slum in New Delhi in her 20s. And you asked them, how many children would you like to have? The answer was always two, at most maybe less, maybe none at all, but definitely no more than two. Uh, and in fact, uh, because Daryl is a, uh, Ipsos is a global firm, um, Ipsos conducted a poll of 26 countries, uh, developed and developing, and found that it didn't really matter what your level of development was. People wanted, women especially, wanted about two kids. The difference is the men. Uh, in, in Brussels, uh, the, the guys at the dinner table agreed that, you know, that their, uh, their partners uh, were entitled to jobs, were entitled to the same kind of opportunities that they were, um, and that a child would be nice, but uh, there were other priorities as well. Um, you heard things, you heard that uh, in Seoul, you would hear, we heard it in, um, in California, uh, uh, you would hear it here in Ottawa. Um, you also heard it in uh, Nairobi and Sao Paulo and New Delhi. The difference was the men. So in that, that, that meeting in New Delhi, you had these young women, um, and they didn't want to have more than two children. Um, but their husbands uh, were a different, a different story. Um, they, uh, they liked sex, for one thing, and they wanted sons for another. And they were determined that there would be as many kids as as they they thought uh, the family needed, and the woman wouldn't have much say in in that discussion. Um, who's going to win? The women who, in the developing world, every bit as much as the developed world, want control over their bodies, want control over their lives, want freedom, want autonomy, or the men who want them just to remain as they traditionally were subservient. And as, as you pointed out, uh, Daryl was conducting that particular conversation in New Delhi, and he noticed that the women kept looking under their saris at their smartphones. Even in a slum in New Delhi, uh, they had a phone and they had a plan. Uh, which meant that they had the sum of human knowledge uh, there in their hands. And as we said in the book, we know how this ends. Um, it's just a question of how, how long it takes. And we now know the answer to that, too, with the latest data that actually arrived after the book came out, or after the book went to the presses, that in fact, um, India is down to replacement rate. So then I guess if, I mean, you've told the story and we're seeing decline and it's going to continue and it's going to get worse, but... So what? Like, what's the what's the big deal? Um, I mean, we you know we've we are avoiding Malthusian horrors, um, and you know, and, and people women are happier and have more autonomy and more freedom, and people can kind of choose the lifestyles, even if that means fewer. Like, what's the what's bad about the story that you're telling? Yeah, I mean, that's the all important question. Um, and again. Uh, well, for the, the, the counter arguments or the, the counter assumptions are, are so important that we would say, you know, just getting this idea out matters. Thanos was wrong. You didn't need to, just to wipe out half the, the, the life in the galaxy because natural forces were going, uh, going to do it instead. Um, so just just changing the argument is going to matter. But but the consequences are huge. Um, uh, and, and there's it beneficial in some ways and not so beneficial in others. So first of all, it's great for the environment. It's just wonderful. By the way, there are some people who seem to be taking this book and saying, oh, well, we don't need to worry about global warming. We can we can abandon the fight to uh, to reduce carbon emissions because uh, there aren't going to be as many people and the economic uh, you know, the, the climate change models are all wrong. This is completely not true. Even 
um, first of all, Daryl and I are, are you know powerfully believe um, in the science of, of global warming, and um, and the actions need to be taken now uh, emphatically uh, to bend the curve. And what the future that we're predicting is you know several decades out. So you can't wait for that. You have to take action now. Um, but but it, it would it it will still be great. You will have fewer people consuming, uh, fewer people you know. Um, stressing the the food chain it'll be great for uh renewing um uh, you know populations in uh in the oceans um it's great also because the process of urbanization is good for the environment it uh allows you to stop using marginal farmland which then reverts to bush which again is a carbon sink uh and promotes bio, uh, biodiversity so on the environmental side this is all good news this is all great um on the economic side not so much, uh, because what a uh, declining population, uh, what, what dominates a declining population? Well, every year there are fewer young people than there were the year before. Every year there are fewer 20-somethings than there were 30-something, fewer 30-somethings and 40-somethings. And that has two impacts. The first is there are fewer young taxpayers paying the, the taxes that governments need in order to sustain all the old folk uh, with their health care and pension needs because life expectancy is also going up. Um, and people are living longer. So you're, you have a real erosion of the tax base. Um, the second thing is, it is it's, it's bad for the consumption part of an economy. And as you know, uh, consumption drives every economy. In liberal capitalist democracies, consumption is the single most important function of growth. Those people, after they graduate from university, they, you know, they buy the first house, they buy the first car, the baby stroller, um, the, you know, the smart black dress for the office party. All the things that they do in their 20s and 30s and 40s promotes economic growth. When there are fewer of them, you have less growth. Um, and it's, again, not a coincidence that, that Japan, which has one of the lowest birth rates in the world, which has been losing population steadily now for a number of years, is pretty much gone through uh, three decades of economic stagnation. One of the causes of those decades of economic stagnation is its older and now diminishing population. So, I mean, I guess the, the argument about the tax base um, – me being a scholar at the Cato Institute, um, I f am – less inclined to feel the weight of because I'm more a fan of we'll just privatize this stuff and let people save for their own retirement and don't, you know, extract money from 20-year-olds to pay for 80-year-olds. But one I mean one other like thing that seems a, a valuable um argument for continuing to grow the population. Um, and I wanted to see what you thought of it is that it's, I think it's the economist Brian Kaplan has made this argument when he makes his pronatalism arguments, which is that you know our lives today are significantly better than people's lives 100, 200, 1,000 years ago. Um, that that's you know the, the world the lives of poor people throughout the world are getting better. Um, and and the reason that they're getting better is because of human ideas. Is because of technological inventions, um, changes in ideology, um, kind of network effects of people working together to accomplish new and amazing things or trading with each other. Um, and, and so when you have a smaller population, you have fewer potential world-changing entrepreneurs. You have fewer potential world-changing artists or writers or thinkers that, you know, the, the – the benefit of the you know mar like each additional marginal human mind entering into the world 
you know, we're not we're not all going to be the next Steve Jobs, but the more people we have, the more likely it is that we have more Steve Jobses. And so a declining population slows those trends and that those trends, um, inventions, technology, all of that are what will solve the big problems that we have today and make you know the lives of people several hundred years from now that much better than what we even have today. So I'd say a couple of things about that. Uh, and if and, and, and this is, as you say, it's a pronatalist policy, which is that's why we should be encouraging people to have more babies. Um, well, uh, we might, we raise this question in the book too. We we wonder about it. Um, there are a couple, but there are several caveats. The first is you know, Athens was a pretty small town when they gave us Plato and Aristotle, um, and England was you know managed to give us Shakespeare uh, with 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 not you know without that larger population. So stuff seems to come out regardless of the the, the size of the base of the population. Um, secondly. There will be start parts of the earth that still have very large numbers of young people. So we may find that the next Steve Jobs uh, comes from Mumbai or comes from Lagos uh, rather than coming from, from uh, Southern California. Uh, the centers of innovation um, may change. Um, third, it's not just technology. The, uh, fertility rates are declining because we have unleashed the productive capacity of half the population. We have given women the tools that they need to live the lives uh, that they are entitled to live, and this is producing fabulous things. I mean, a again, we were in uh, in Nairobi, um, which has uh, the UN has has Kenya's fertility rate uh, staying high for the rest of the century. Well, this is nonsense because the Kenyan government, uh, about a decade ago, instituted mandatory elementary education for girls. And last year, for the for there were as many girls who sat the grade eight graduation exams as there were boys. And by the way, they got a higher average mark than the boys. That almost always happens. Um, so, and, and, and guess what? Uh, In-country demographers are saying that they think the, 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 the birth rates in Kenya are going down you know, much, much faster than other people uh, are predicting. They should if you have empowered, educated women. So it's not just technology. Um, it, 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 we, we are doubling the, the entrepreneurial and creative capacity of the planet in a way as we become more equal and fertility rates come down. And then finally, there's nothing you can do about it anyway, Mr. Kaplan, because of something called the low, uh, the low fertility trap. And that essentially is once you are down to a low birth rate, you just get used to it. Right. One point, you know, a kid or two kids at the most is what you have. If one of your friends who was not, uh, you know, a, a religious fundamentalist just said, you know, we've decided we want to have six kids uh, just because you would go. That's well, that's interesting. Why? I've never heard of that before. That's that's an interesting decision for you to make because it would seem so odd. Uh, and and not just not just because society has gotten used to it, the very reason you're having a kid now has fundamentally changed. You're not having a child because the state demands it of you. We need cannon fodder for the army. Uh, you're not having a child because God uh, commands it. You're not having a child because your family is pushing you into having it. You're having a child because you and your partner decide that you want to have a child. It is a way in which you fulfill yourself. It is a way in which you enrich your life by bringing someone into the world and nurturing that someone and making that someone um, uh, an adult who will themselves contribute. It is, in a sense, that sense, a lifestyle decision. And 
if you are having children not because you are ordered to, but because you want to, because you want to be more fully fulfilled, it turns out one or two leaves you pretty fulfilled. You don't go much farther than that. So those are all reasons why once fertility rates get down below replacement rate, uh, there's almost nothing that you can do to bring them back up. And there is absolutely nothing you can do to bring them back up above replacement rate. It just hasn't happened successfully anywhere in the world. So why don't we talk about some of the the mostly failed, but sometimes temporarily successful efforts to bring those rates back up. Um, you, you mentioned in here, you know, there are countries that have tried to raise uh, the birth rate through various programs like, you know, cash payments for kids, uh, extra child care benefits, you know, mandated maternity and paternity leave. Um, what effect, what limited effect has that had on birth rates and why? I mean, I'll give away the, the story here. They don't, in a long-term sense, it's not really been sustainable so far. Right. Well, now, we, and we should do a big asterisk here. Um, Daryl and I are both Canadians. So as far as the Cato Institute is concerned, we're communists. Uh, we we are huge supporters of um, government programs to help people have kids. Um, Canada has a very generous uh, uh, family leave, um, and we would like to see it more generous still. Um, there are very generous programs to uh, provide government subsidies for daycare, again, because that allows women to get back to work, to become more productive. Uh, we support those policies. We support anything that will make it easier um, for women to have children um, and to con and to not be penalized for it in terms of their own working lives. One of the things we, we threw out is an idea that you can have a very generous family leave policy, but half of it must be taken by the husband or you lose it all. Um, but be that as it may, these are all good ideas in and of themselves in order to make it possible for people to, to live the, the fullest possible life. But they're not going to convince you to have a baby you don't want to have. So here in, in Canada, the Quebec government came up with pretty generous uh, child care uh, policies. Uh, and it worked a bit uh, in that, ch that Quebec went from having the lowest fertility rate in Canada to being about average with the rest of Canada. Now, the, the Nordic countries have been doing this really since, uh, since the 1930s. And they have found that they can get their fertility rates up a point or two to around 1.8, 1.9. But these are very, very expensive policies. And invariably, recession comes along and governments have to cut whether they want to or not. And these are the first things that go because they are so expensive. So the, the, the short answer is policies that, um, that are in place to help parents have children so that women can live the best possible lives um, are good in and of themselves, but they will not succeed in bringing you uh, up to uh, a replacement rate or above because you can't bribe women to have kids. I wonder how much long-term cultural change could have an impact because when back at the beginning of our conversation, when you were describing you know, the reasons why we see declining birth rates the you know the the cultural effects that then lead to them which tend to be you know women have access to have more choices they have access to more information um, they have more things to do they want to have jobs they want to have careers and so on that these are you know basically they all of these are having children has costs both both financial um, and just in you know having a kid means you can't do other things. Um, and I have three young children and know very well just how kind of costly they can be. Um, but 
but a lot of that is a factor of wealth. Like it's, you know, if my I would have children would be less costly for me in terms of lifestyle if I could afford a full-time nanny. Um, if if medical care were even better, pregnancy would be less costful for women. If we had better, you know, like so all of these are things where if if we see more wealth, will will more wealth kind of open it back up that people can kind of have their cake and eat it too? No, uh, I think would be the quick answer. It is increasing wealth that brought the birth rate down in the first place. Um, it is increasing wealth uh, th uh, that brought about public health uh, and and other programs that uh, reduced um, infant mortality, so women didn't need to have six kids, knowing that only three of them would survive. Um, and again, you go to some of the poorest places on earth, and you will find poor women taking uh, measures to make sure they don't have um, too many children, and in fact, to ensure that uh, their um, fertility rates match those of the very wealthiest countries in the world. So, for example, uh, again, we, we went to uh, Sao Paulo because we were very curious as to why Brazil had such a low fertility rate, even though uh, it is a large, poor country. Uh, and the, the obvious answer was, yes, Brazil is urbanizing rapidly. And as it urbanizes, fertility rates come down. But there were a couple of other things that we found that really surprised us because Brazilians have been studying why uh, Brazilian fertility rates are so low. And one is electrification of the favelas, which um, allowed uh, people to start watching uh, television, not in every single shanty, but there'd be enough televisions that people could sort of gather around and watch TV. And women in particular love to get together and watch the soaps, uh, the romances as they're called. And when they watched soap operas, one of the things they discovered was that here were shows about very powerful, rich women in highly unconventional domestic arrangements, not having children. Uh, so just as we like to name our babies after soap opera stars, um, in Brazil, uh, they stop having babies in emulation of soap opera stars. Another thing is one of the great examples of the law of unintended consequences in public policy that I've ever seen. So again, women have children early in Brazil, and that should mean they have them often because there's a long childbearing period there. Um, and yet they don't. So why don't they? Uh, especially because there is still, you know, a machismo culture. You have uh, men who um, will, you want to have sex and want to have kids, and they don't care what their wives think about that. Um, so what will, what will happen is uh, when the woman has decided that she wants this to be her last pregnancy, she will go to the doctor and say, I want this to be my last pregnancy. Uh, Brazil has public health care. It's not very good. Um, so the doctor will say, well, look, why don't I declare you a problem pregnancy? Let's make this an at-risk birth. And that means I will perform a cesarean section. This is good for me because as I, as a doctor, I get more money for performing a cesarean section. Um, and it's good for you because while I'm in there, I'll do a tubal ligation. And this will be your last pregnancy. It's called shutting down the factory. And shutting down the factory is one of the major forms of birth control in the United in, in Brazil. Women deciding of their own volition to stop having babies, whether their husbands want to or not. So uh, the experience around the world tends to be that growing wealth does not lead to the ability to have more kids. It leads to the desire to have fewer um, in the developing world as well as in the developed. Um to kind of turn to a slightly different topic, um, 
Uh, you mentioned you know Thanos's snap in the Avengers. I'm trying to imagine which Avenger you and Daryl would be. Oh, maybe we'll make you Iron Man. I don't, I don't know. What's the most Canadian Avenger? Um, we don't avenge. We don't. You don't just, avenge. That's right. It's just not nice. <laughs> That's right. Um, but it, so in there, you have an echo of concerns about. I mean, there's a popular echo of concerns about overpopulation. Uh, it does not feel to me, um, and I am a historian of the 1960s. It does not feel as strong as concerns about overpopulation were in like the 60s and 70s, the you know time period of Paul Ehrlich's uh, population bomb, when there really was kind of a, a panic over um, global overpopulation and uh, declining natural resources. I mean, so we still, we do still have an echo of that. There are still concerns there. As like, where do you see? Where do you see the inflection point coming? At what point will folks start to realize the problem is not global overpopulation, it's underpopulation? And how do you get folks to be concerned about that as a crisis? I mean, because as you mentioned, I mean, part of part of Ehrlich's argument was from an environmentalist perspective, which is people are bad for the environment, therefore we should have fewer people. And you can imagine, like the appeal you just made from an envir- environmental perspective, this is not bad for the envi- environment. This will be good. But there are other ill consequences. How how do you get people to see that uh, it's the opposite problem from overpopulation? There'll be underpopulation, and it's still a problem even though it's good for the environment. Yeah. So I guess the reason why I mean you still have these books coming out. Um, there there are a couple, couple of just in the last few years that said you know Malthus was wrong and Ehrlich was wrong and the Club of Rome was wrong. But now is the time. Now is where it all comes crashing down. It's like evangelical Christians, right? You're, I was raised a Baptist, and you're always at the end times. The veil of the temple is about to be rent any day now. Um, and so. Um, I think the reason that it's not uh, as top of mind as it used to be is that we proved that we can feed people, right? In in all respects but one, we are handling 7 billion people um, without a tremendous amount of difficulty. There has not been a famine anywhere in the world since the 1990s that was not imposed upon the people by the government or, or by war, right? We can feed 7 billion people. We could feed 11 billion people uh, if we had to. That's not going to be an issue. And in terms of what Ehrlich saw as, you know, endless pollution of waters, endless contamination of soil, endless extinctions, um, that ha- that's not happening either. Um, you know, here in Canada, uh, I grew up near the Great Lakes. The Great Lakes have never been healthier uh, in, than they are right now in, in my lifetime. Uh, we've, you know, we've we've fought uh, and and won the battle against acid rain and, and the ozone layer and all those things. Uh, the one area where it remains so critical issue is, um, is is global warming. And if you believe that the planet is warming because of human activity, and we do. Um, then you have to believe that getting from 7 billion to 11 billion uh, is going to be an issue unless we find a way to innovate our way out of it. And and I'm reasonably confident, um, based only on the past experience of, of, of the species, that we will innovate our way out of it, um, uh, that, that we will find ways to reduce carbon emissions um, and, and, and going forward. Um, but I think people will start to notice uh, that there are implications for population decline uh, when they start to find uh, that they're struggling uh, to to keep their their social safety nets in place. Look at you know China is you know, you know the old the, the expression that China will grow old before it gets grows rich. We, we haven't talked about the geopolitics of all of this. What does it mean for a century in which 
population decline is ravaging the, the Chinese economy. Um, there's nothing more dangerous than, than an empire in decline. All those restless young men who um, uh, are, are working incredible hours to try to pay the costs of the enormous number of old people uh, that are in China. Um, the United States, if it does not close the door to immigration, uh, will get up to around 450 million people. Uh, China could get down to about 650 million. How does that change the uh, the consequences of of, uh, of the global balance of power if the United States isn't even that much smaller than China in terms of population, let alone in terms of wealth, um, it will also so it, it will also start to show up. We think um, in a couple of decades when instead of having the um, the the question the, the the debate over whether we should allow immigrants into our country, we start to have the debate of how are we going to get immigrants to come to our country because as these population as these birth rates go down. Um, it's going to get harder and harder to attract immigrants. So Canada brings in far more immigrants than the United States does uh, on a per capita basis. If you were bringing in immigrants the way we bring in immigrants, you'd be bringing in 3 million a year. We bring in about 1% of our population annually, uh, and we're a population of 37 million people, and we'll be bringing in around 370,000 immigrants this year. Imagine if, the, if you guys are bringing in 3.7 million immigrants per year, how, how things would be different. But we are finding that um, it used to be that China was by far the biggest source of immigrants to Canada. Now they're down to a poor third because China is, is developing, it's becoming affluent, its birth rate is way down. Not as many Chinese want to come to Canada anymore. Um, India is number two. Well, India is now at replacement rate, and in the, India too is growing and modernizing. Um, but there's always the Philippines. Uh, we can always count on the Philippines to send us immigrants. Well, not so much. Uh, the Philippines' uh, birth rate is dropping like a stone, and they're they're having their first stories about um, are we on our way to replacement rate and are we on our way to b below replacement rate. So you could find in thirty or forty years, and I've already talked to you about about how the um, uh, the Latin American uh, birth rate is at or below replacement rate. Uh, you could find a, a, a time in 20 or 30 years when the United States and Canada are fighting over uh, trying to bring immigrants into the country in order to sustain the population uh, and the tax base. Hmm. Yeah, I was I was struck in as I went through your, your little case studies uh, uh, region by region. Um, it kind of upended my assumptions. I mean, as somebody who observes the tech sector uh, for a living – uh, there's still a lot of bullishness about the Chinese economy and, and, and Chinese prospects in the future, but it's as folks aren't generally thinking about the population crisis that's coming for China because of their exceptionally low. I mean, by the standards of where they're at on the development curve, their rate is low even for that. What what we'd expect in part because of the one child policy, um, but it also was it, you had a surprisingly bullish take on places uh, like. Sub-Saharan, uh, uh, like Africa, uh, uh, as well as Canada. But what really surprised me was the U.S. That, um, to some extent, in the U.S. we are kind of shooting ourselves in the foot by not accepting as many immigrants as as we can. Um, but folks come anyways. But that's to our benefit. So it's not for want of trying to shoot ourselves in the foot. But uh, the the long term prospects for the for the for the U.S. are are good because of immigration. I, that, that actually took me by surprise. It was a it was a counter narrative. I'm so used to the doom and gloom, which is we have a nativist administration uh, uh, you know, trying to restrict immigration. But if you look in the if you look at like kind of the big term picture, we are still accepting millions of immigrants in the United States, 
And that is going to help us uh, weather some of these coming storms that are going to hit China and Korea uh, and even Japan in the shorter term. So, that, I mean, that took me a surprise. I think it was some of the more interesting material in the book. Um, Although, again, you could do it so much better. You know, the old yeah, saying, absolutely. the United States always does the right thing after exhausting all other possibilities. Um, and, and sure, you're bringing in uh, immigrants, but you're, you know, you're doing it in an unplanned fashion. Uh, we... You know, we believe that high immigration levels are a conservative argument. If you're on the right, um, you should be heavily pro-immigration. Um, Canada has been has been going out and beating the bushes for immigrants since the 1890s. Guess what? People would rather come to your country than our country. Um, they just would. And they've always wanted to go to your country uh, rather than my country. As we had this conversation, I think we pointed out that the temperature in Ottawa today was near freezing and uh, it was pleasantly warm in Washington. So um, tr just trying to get people to come to the prairies, for you know, crying out loud. Um, so we've always seen um, immigration as a purely economic, not a compassionate, not a we owe the world, we need to help poor people. No, it is in Canada's interest to bring in immigrants. And for example, um, in the last uh, 15 years, we have quadrupled the number of students uh, foreign students in our colleges and universities. They've gone from about 50,000 to 200,000 a year, in part because you guys are closing your door uh, to foreign students. And we have a program here that the Cato Institute should just love. Um, we promise any student who comes to Canada that um, upon graduation, they are automatically granted uh, a three-year uh, work permit. Um, and at the end of three-year work permit, they are put on a fast track to citizenship if they want it. Why? Well, first of all, they're young, so they're going to pay taxes for a long time. They've got a great education. How do we know that? We educated them. Um, and they speak one of our two official languages, or they wouldn't have been able to go through our education system. Um, they are the ideal immigrant. So as other countries, Britain is doing it too. Britain is cutting back on, on, on foreign students uh, being allowed into the country. The United States is cutting back. Canada is throwing open the doors and saying, we'll take them. Um, because it's not as cold as you think, and you guys are dream immigrants for us. Um, and as long as you know the Canadian governments of all persuasions, liberal and conservative, embrace that, it's going to be a huge competitive advantage for our country going forward. And it, and it could be for yours too if you could just get over this nativist argument. Yeah, no, well, we're Cato is definitely on board with um, uh, a maximal immigration policy. So uh, we are counterparts in that regard. Unfortunately, for time's sake, I think I have to uh, wrap things up here. But I wanted to get to talk about Canadian politics a little bit and and uh, dig into some of that because I know you wrote a biography of Stephen Harper. But maybe another time we'll we'll get back in touch with our Canadian brethren from the frozen tundra of, of Toronto. Uh, but thank you so much, John, for coming on the show. We, we greatly appreciate it. It was Ottawa, which is even colder than Toronto. Ottawa, and it was a okay. pleasure. I enjoyed myself. <laughs> All right. Thank you, John. And to our listeners, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.